Hello and welcome. You are listening to Resiliency, a podcast that takes an inside look at enhancing the vitality and resilience of field workers. From experts in member care to frontline field workers, our guests will bring you their experience, their lessons learned, and always something practical you can take away and use to increase your resiliency in cross-cultural life and ministry. Co-hosts Silas West and Steve Finley are just one part of an ever-growing and strengthening net of member care in the Antioch movement. They want to see Matthew 24, 14 happen and do everything they can to help field workers have the kind of resilience that enables them to make it for the long haul. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Resiliency. I'm very thrilled, thankful, and looking forward to hearing from our guest today. Our guest is our other host, uh, Silas. <laughs> one of our most listened to episodes ever, by the way, was your one on lament that we posted uh, shortly after the one that Bob Watson shared with us on grief and loss, and it's really been helpful to people. I'm confident that what we're going to talk about today is going to help a lot of you on the field, and that is just this big broad subject of cultural adaptation. He teaches this class on cultural adaptation and um, I remember the first time I heard it Silas I thought this is the type of stuff that a person in training to go overseas as well as those who are already on the field particularly first term would benefit so much from hearing this stuff. So mm. I'm really thankful for you and your experience, of course, of having lived on the field so many years and also just interacted with hundreds and hundreds of field workers. So welcome to Resiliency Silas, the Good pioneer, to be here. the pioneer himself of this <laughs> of this broadcast. So Silas, let's just jump right into it. What makes adapting to a new culture so incredibly challenging and stressful? Yeah, it's a that is a big question, it's broad, but it's a, an important one. There are probably two major factors. There's a lot of minor ones, but two major ones that contribute to this. One is it's loss. Both of them have to do with loss. And, and so the first one is the loss of uh, assumed knowledge. So we go through life, we build up assumed knowledge, how we do just about everything, mm -hmm. to get to the point where we don't use up energy emotional or, or mental energy to think of how we're going to do a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff or yeah. how, how we get from point A to point B. But if I try that same experience overseas where all of my assumed knowledge is gone, it, it's a, there's a lot of loss that I experience there. And, and so there's emotional energy that goes into, that's expelled and expended to try to relearn how to do things. And in a cross-cultural setting, it's, it's very much more amplified, so. It's yeah. amplified, yeah. So it, the first thing is the loss of assumed knowledge. And the second that comes with it is a loss of autonomy. Mm -hmm. When we feel like, especially for well-educated people who have prided themselves in being able to, to know how to do so many things, mm -hmm. You suddenly find yourself in this cross-cultural setting with a, a very minimal amount of language, and you're basically relegated to the, as being a toddler. Yeah. And that's that's kind of a blow to your ego. Yeah. Can't talk to people. Yeah. Don't you kind of be led by the hand by whoever your host is or, or whatever. It's yeah. just it's a tough place to be. Mm -hmm. So loss has to do with the majority of the stress that people feel, and then you had add on to that things like loss of just being with family and friends. And which aren't minimal, but they are they're in addition to these big major things that kind of have a pervasive effect, but also uh, this global effect on a on an individual. Yeah. So just the compounding of, of so much 
so many things that are new, so many things that are unfamiliar, so many things that you've never done life this way. Mm -hmm. So Silas, talk to us about the Holmes Ray stress level scale. Okay, so uh, I came across this when I was doing my, my graduate work. I was doing some research on missionary attrition. What are the causes? What are the, the preventable causes? And what are the things that can be done to, to mitigate attrition? And I uh, came across the, the Holmes Ray Stress Level Scale, which is a, a scale that has uh, individual stressors and with assigned a numerical value. And uh, so in that, that, that thing, you, you tick off whichever one you've experienced over the last 12 months. And then you so add it's going to say stuff like death of a family death member, of a family member, or a move, a move, a major holiday. Um, yeah. Could be uh, getting a promotion. So some of the yeah. things were positive, but okay. it still causes stress. Right. And then you add up the numerical value of each one that you've mm -hmm. ticked, and if you get a two hundred or above, then they considered you at risk for a heart episode or or mental health, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that was kind of your, your typical baseline for Americans would be 200 or below, and any, anything there would be kind of a normal range of stress. Okay. But they, they found that when they were working with global workers, that A, there wasn't enough stressors on the test, mm -hmm. and B, they consistently scored 600 or above. Mm -hmm. 600 was the baseline. So I know that sounds alarming. So they adapted this the thing to add, mm -hmm. include more of the stressors that right. the international workers experience. Yep. And yep. then and in the as they added up what an international worker would experience, that baseline went from two hundred or below right. to actually six hundred and, and and higher. Yikes. Because in the first term it was the people were consistently scoring a thousand mm. during especially the first two years on the field. <laughs> Yeah, on that note, so when you train people in our organization, in our church planters training about effectively dealing with the stress of, of cultural adaptation, you say, and I quote this from your teaching notes, you say, what we're seeking to do is address some of the factors that would cause us to resist adapting or remain rigid in our own expectations and thereby increase the likelihood and intensity of stress during cultural adaptation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we know that stress is going to come, right. but cultural stress is particularly stressful and we can do some things, or I guess we can not do some things, where we would resist adapting, like you said, where we would remain rigid in our own expectations. Right. So, so what are those factors that we, that we want to eliminate in right. order that we not be rigid uh, and resistant? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's two main things. One of them, there's a difference in personality that, though it is a personality trait, uh, we can learn how to adjust and adapt in that personality trait. And one of them is um, being more open-minded or adaptable versus being more rigid and closed-minded. So closed-minded would be not willing to try new things. Mm -hmm. So somebody who... Risk-averse. Risk-averse, but even just like, I'm not really keen on trying Indian food. I would rather just eat right. uh, steak and potatoes. And okay. So being more open-minded, forcing yourself to try new things. Mm -hmm. So just pushing yourself past what would be your normal comfort zone right. can become one of those ways. And that you can do that even before you go to the field to try to just expand the... Yeah, uh, that's good. The kind of the threshold of what you can deal with. And then, so that was, that's more of the open-mindedness, but then the adaptability factor. Um, some people just are naturally more inclined to be uh, able to handle interruptions or a change of schedule or a lack of routine than, than other people. Mm -hmm. And and 
those who can't or who are have a harder time with that find that to be more stressful when those things are imposed on them. And so just trying to, again, expand the threshold of that, you can learn how to become a little bit more adaptable. It may not be a, a natural bent, mm-hmm. but you can learn to be more adaptable mm-hmm. and think about it in, in different ways other than it's just an inconvenience to you. So that's more of a personality side, but the other side of it is learning how to, in a sense, short circuit our information processing system in the area of where we self are inclined to self-protect when we come up against something that makes us uncomfortable mm-hmm. or something that's embarrassing or something that we feel might be potentially putting us in, in some place of risk. And I don't mean like we want to just step out in front of buses or something like that, but what I do mean is if I go to the market in, in this new country that I'm in and try to buy a mango and I say the wrong words and the lady laughs at me, Right. The natural inclination inside of me is going to say, hey, next time I go to the market, I'm avoiding that stall, or I might go avoid that whole market, depending on how the level of of embarrassment I feel. Mm -hmm. In in resisting adapting, I might avoid those places, but a way to to short-circuit that or counter that would be actually going back to that same exact lady, doing it again, doing it right, or trying to do it right, and just keep going over and over and over again, even though it makes us uncomfortable. When we keep pushing up against each different factor that makes us uncomfortable, it makes us feel embarrassed, it makes us feel unsafe, we adapt culturally much faster than when we pull back and isolate or withdraw from it. That's great advice. Very good. So, talking about cultural adaptation, talking about stressors, you know, something a lot, you know, dare I say, most people experience during their first term on the field is is anger. So talk to me, what's going on there? What's that all about? A lot of it has to do with just not getting, not things not going the way that we plan it to go. Things, yeah. we have uh, expectations, and when those expectations aren't met in one way or another, we become angry. That's what usually the cause of anger. And so it, when you go overseas and things are being done in ways that we just don't even have the assumed knowledge to expect them to be done, mm-hmm. it can easily result in anger. And I often see people who would say things like, this culture is so backwards. Or yeah. this. That's anger. It's a low-grade frustration, anger, because the, 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 expect, the way that we think the world should operate is suddenly changed right. because of a, a number of cultural differences. And um, we, we think that things should go one way because that's the assumed knowledge that we have, and suddenly they're going another way. So that's where the anger is coming from. And when, when, think, when we have enough of those, those things piling up in our, our experience on a day-by-day basis, it's naturally going to result in anger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you and I have seen people whom we would, we would say their entire personality has changed mm-hmm. and it becomes so acute that it can become almost a should I stay or should I go type of thing. Yep. And we're having to help them assess that because they're just not making it. But I remember for me, I'll tell my story if you'll tell yours. Um, <laughs> this is silly kind of, it's silly of course this one is, but I lived in Singapore for, for 18 years and in Singapore, It's different than driving here in America. If you and I were going down Business 77, which we live off of, if we wanted to U-turn, we could U-turn anywhere we wanted in one sense, as long as we do it safely, Mm -hmm. and as long as there were no sign that said no U-turn. But in Singapore, it's opposite in that the only place you can U-turn is where they have signs that say Mm U-turn. So if you're thinking, I would love to make a U-turn right here, 
you better think again because Singapore is a fine nation, as they say. And if you get caught by by cameras that are all on the streets or by a policeman himself, you will get fined for doing a U-turn anywhere where there where there's not a U-turn sign. Hmm. And it would make me so angry. It make me so frustrated. I'm like, this is so stupid. I could turn around. I'm going to have to go three kilometers down the road because I because I know where that U-turn sign is. And it just, I allowed it to keep me kind of wigged out for a while. Mm-hmm. And and finally, you know, it's just over a course of time, I said, hey, it's the way it is. This is the way Singapore does their roads. And Singapore works, man. It works. It, it's an efficient, highly efficient place. Mm-hmm. That could be frustrating at times, but I think I took on more of a mindset of I can't allow my blood to boil over a, over where a U-turn sign is is or isn't you know so so you change your expectations well yeah they they build up these kind of things build up little things uh can really become the burr in your saddle mm-hmm. you know if we if we allow them to build up so yes change my expectations change my way to look at that and said i'm giving thanks yeah you know there aren't a lot of accidents here even you know yeah yeah i think uh the story that came to my mind was uh in the early days of my time in, in South Asia, spent a lot of though I was stationed in Nepal, I spent a lot of time in India, where they have these three wheeled auto rickshaws, mm-hmm. and just being a, a white guy getting into one, the price automatically went up. Yeah. And so living kind of with that price tag thing on my head all the time, I started to feel the injustice of it. I started to feel the the, the weight of that, and I remember one particular time, this rickshaw driver wanted to charge me way more than what I knew was the right the right price mm-hmm. and I, I that had built up enough that I I pushed his rickshaw over oh my goodness. <laughs> you know because I told him what it should cost and he he just like no no it's this uh. I promise it's this and no it's just because I'm white there's kind of it and it was not just a one-time thing but it would had been a whole day of yeah. paying this and and I just let that get to the point where I was so angry I pushed over the rickshaw right. and it, it took me aback because that's not part of who that's not how I am I am not an angry person yeah and to see that level of anger expressed in me was uh, was frightening we were talking about a 50 cent yeah 25 cent to 50 cent difference yes we've and, been there uh, everybody who's, who's listened to this on the field has been there yeah and it's just really I'm gonna get that angry about it. yeah. something that really the, the dude probably could have really used it yeah and that would have helped him and his his family way more than I needed it yeah and I was just letting myself get get worked up mm-hmm. and it, I had to change my expectations I'm a white person in a in their country right. and they're gonna see me as an opportunity mm-hmm. because they don't have very many opportunities yeah and so when I realized that and it sunk in changed my expectations it, it helped me to deal with that anger yeah that's great so practical so once again, Silas, when you teach this stuff in our, in our church planting intensives, you share about some things that can help workers who are experiencing this turbulent tailspin of cultural stress. What are some of those things that you would tell our listeners today? Uh, one of the key things is remaining diligent in language learning. I've, I've talked to people who have said things like, well, you know, in our country there, there is enough people that speak English um, and there's a lot of people who we can get to translate for us. And so I'm going to get more focused on doing the work of church planting and less, spend less time language learning, or maybe not language learning at all. Mm-hmm. I can get by without doing it. Uh, you're never going to really feel like you're a part of the country that you're giving yourself to 
unless you can speak the language. The, the, the relationships that are, are there won't be as reciprocal if you aren't willing to learn the language of, of the people who, who you're, you're serving with. Mm -hmm. So uh, language learning, it helps to develop realistic expectations for, um, for how, how life goes on. And if you, just going back to that anger thing, if we don't really understand the life and the, the, the worldview and the way that people think, then we're not going to have healthy expectations and we're probably going to start feeling more angry. Yeah. But the more insight I have into the worldview and into the mindset of the people that I'm serving and living among, the, the more I'm going to be able to set healthy expectations. And language yeah. learning can be key to that. But then also having healthy expectations for ourselves in language learning, it's not going to be an easy short-term process. We, most people don't speak fluently until well after four or five years of, of right. diligent language learning. Mm -hmm. um, you can get to where you're, you're an adequate communicator in a, in a year. You can get to where you're really able to speak at a heart level but have to talk around a lot of things mm -hmm. in three years. But to really speak fluently, it takes, it takes four to five years to be able to just be able to flow in that language. And so having a healthy expectation for that is going to be is going to be key. So uh, language learning is a, a big piece. It helps build confidence. It helps reduce anxiety in a in a new culture. Mm. Um, then making intentional friendships with people from your host culture, not just people who you're looking at as objects of ministry, right. but people who are actually going to be your friends. Mm. And uh, sometimes those might even be somebody who those people might be somebody who aren't Christians. Mm -hmm. They might be a Muslim person or a Hindu person but they're still a close friend. They can become really key mentors, cultural mentors, people that you can, they know you're hard enough so that you can ask them hard questions about their culture. Why do you do things yeah. this way? And they can give you insight into the, the mindset and the worldview. You need people there that, that might make you feel like you can belong and that you have a place to, to call home. Yeah. And so having those, those relationships are really key. Uh, and then learning from your mistakes and being willing to keep trying even when faced with a, a history of failure. Like I, I mentioned, when we overcome that, that self-protection from embarrassment thing, uh, we, can, we can learn how to be more culturally adaptive and be, uh, be able to reduce the stress in our lives by learning from our mistakes and revisiting the places where our mistakes happen. Help us here by revisiting that experience, Silas, of loss after loss after loss that we experience as we go through this long process of cultural adjustments and adaptations and, and how the loss that we experience is by no means all negative or something that grieves us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's actually two cycles of crisis that happen for, for missionaries who, who go overseas in their first term. Uh, and they're actually the, the name of those those uh, low points is the crisis phase. Mm -hmm. The first one is an accumulation of loss. It happens usually between six and eight months of being on the field. It's an accumulation of loss of all those little things that like the, the assumed knowledge, mm -hmm. the language, the ability to communicate, uh, autonomy, loss of relationships and friendships that were sustainable and meaningful. And so kind of being in a new place where we're trying to rebuild lives uh, with either teammates or uh, local people. So the loss is about more of our circumstantial losses, the, 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 the tangible and obvious losses of one person moving from one location to another, and that new location is com almost completely devoid of any kind of 
cultural or geographical um, familiarity. familiarity. Yeah. Mm. So the losses there, and, and there's also losses with that of maybe financial security because yeah. people are suddenly living on support mm-hmm. and trusting that people are going to pay their 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 commitments to for support. So there's a loss. Even that is kind of associated with autonomy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's loss of financial security. Some people are experiencing the loss of maybe uh, parental support. Their parents or family members aren't really keen on them being overseas. Yeah. So they have that loss to deal with. Uh, loss of um, just comfort. And maybe the temperature or the climate isn't something that is easy for them. Mm-hmm. So there's loss there. So it's just piles and piles and piles of loss. Yeah. And if we don't grieve those, name them and grieve them, it's going to add stress into our lives. So that's one of the, the factors of loss. But in the second crisis that people go through, it's more of an abstract loss. They get faced, as they adapt to the circumstantial losses, they realize, they get to a place where they realize that they're not the same person that they were two years ago. Yeah. So around this 18 to 24 month period, people hit another crisis. And it's really the, it's grieving the loss of saying goodbye to the person that they were mm-hmm. as they emerge into a new person that's never going to quite be the one that fits in back home, but also doesn't completely fit in in their new culture. Yeah. So it's this loss of who they were and a recognition that there's with that comes the loss of ever really fully feeling at home anywhere. Mm-hmm. So totally strange curveball here, Silas. <laughs> Talk to us about food. Uh, here's where I'm going with this. In this age of globalization, a whole bunch of us who live, or in our case have lived on the field, have a lot more food options available to us than just local food, and yet learning to eat and, and love local food and, and really make it our primary diet is a significant part of cultural adaptation. Do you agree? I do. And, and it's sim- even simple things like the, the different spices that get used are a part of the culture. And the, to be able to appreciate the, those flavors in our foods is, is something that helps us to adapt a little bit more. If, if we're really so tied up to having to have a, a Big Mac you know, every other meal mm-hmm. and, and eat, uh, eat food that was familiar to us, it goes back to that whole thing I was talking about with being rigid and in our expectations and it's not allowing us to be adaptable to the culture. And so uh, I think, I think in, to kind of your point, the food tells us a lot about a, a people. Mm-hmm. And if we can uh, learn to appreciate it, even if it's not our favorite thing, but learn to get to at least that place where we appreciate it, I think that's a, it says a lot about our ability to adapt and adjust to a culture. Let's talk about some more practical ideas and how to develop resiliency and reduce the intensity of the stress of cultural adaptation. I've heard you say adapting to the country <laughs> is different than adapting to the culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard you share about your experience of spending your teenage years at boarding school in Kenya and observing how KCs did life there. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, in, in Kenya, there's, there was a lot of Kenya citizens, KCs, and those were people who were, they were British people who had made citizenship in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they were people who had, back, back before Kenya got independence, would have been the colonists. So they were carving uh, coffee plantations out of a, an East African wilderness, mm-hmm. dealing with famine, dealing with wild animals, dealing with the loss of, of children, and dealing with a, an uprising in the 1960s that 
led to Kenya's independence. So for them, Kenyans and the culture of Kenya were just one more obstacle to overcome mm. in learning how to live there. So they were adapt. They adapted very well to the to the country, but they never adapted to the, the, the culture. They lived a very resistant subculture within the Kenyan culture, mm. and it was really sad to see because they they never really appreciated Kenyan food, Kenyan culture, Kenyan people. The Kenyan people were just one more obstacle. Imagine Kenyans didn't appreciate them. That was <laughs> it. Went very. It went very. Uh, it was very mutual. Yeah. Uh, what was sad though to see was a lot of missionaries who kind of reacted in the sim- in a similar way, mm. going to Kenya, for the sake of blessing and, and blessing Kenyans and, and sharing the gospel, but had adapted very well to the country and not to the culture and the people. They lived in a, a very tight knit subculture outside of of Kenyan. The, the Kenyan culture, mm. and uh, in some ways were, were resistant to adapting to the, the culture. And it was just sad. It was sad to see how that affected their relationships. It was sad to see what Kenyans would say about them and how Kenyans felt about them. And uh, some of them had been there for 20 years, and they just never really saw past their own, their own worldview to see what, what was available to them. And in a sense also because of that, because they didn't appreciate Kenyan culture, they weren't asking Kenyans how mm. they were being perceived. And so they weren't getting good feedback and mm. adjusting and adapting for that reason. So we can easily adapt to a country but never adapt to the culture, but we have to do both. Yes. Well, um, you have a great line in your, in your stress of cultural adaptation teaching you say we cannot adjust to that which we decline to experience. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about that and the, the learning to see cycle, which is part of that teaching. Yeah, you probably have experienced this. You learn about a new type of car, and suddenly when you're driving, you just see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. But they were always there, we just didn't see them yeah. because we weren't really looking for them, we weren't aware. So learning to see, we learn to look for things and learning to see that we might not have seen otherwise. So if I go to a new country, and, um, and I'm thinking about things from, or I'm, I'm, like, my expectations of what I'm going to see are built on what I've seen all, all along in the past. I'm, I'm going to miss a lot. Yeah. But the more I become uh, adaptable to see things, to see new things, to listen to what people are saying to me, and then I go out and I realize, oh, yeah, I'm seeing that for the first time. So uh, we can learn to see things that we otherwise wouldn't have. Yes, back to that thing of just a real openness and even eagerness to experience new things mm-hmm. rather than being resistant to mm-hmm. to uh, yeah taking risks and all that yeah one last question uh, from your teaching Silas yeah. um, teaching notes unpack this one you say learning how to reflect on our process and progress of adjustment is an important and essential way to reverse the cycle the learning to see cycle mm-hmm. yeah so there's a, a prayer the prayer of examine that uh, was one of the Ignatian contemplative prayer practices where you, you ask the Holy Spirit to go over your day with you. It's kind of a, a review of the day. And, and so as he reviews those with us, we get to see things in, in a new light, learn from it, and then the next day, hopefully, uh, we would operate in a different way. Yeah. I, I realized early on that a similar process in how we um, go over, look over our day we're looking for those moments where we had cultural resistance, where we would come up, came up against a, 
uh, an expectation that maybe wasn't met. Look at those and we look at our reaction to them and maybe set a plan for the next day to go back to those places and push against the, the desire to withdraw and, and to isolate from them. Uh, but just going back over a day, reflecting over it, asking ourselves the question, what, what was my expectation? And what might be an ex a cultural expectation that I can learn from to help me change and adjust that expectation? During the years that we lived in Nepal, I actually lived with a, a host family. They became really close friends to, to my wife and I. And we would end our days often, just Gautam and I sitting around a cup of tea and just talking about the day. And I would review a lot of things that happened, not necessarily looking for his input, but just, here, here's something that happened today. And then he would just talk to me about it and say, hey, have you, did you think about it from this perspective? Mm. Or, well, do you know why that happened that way? Or, I can't believe that you did that. Or, or something like that. And he would just start to give, unpack my day with me, almost like he was the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, but he would unpack the day with me and help me to see things from a different perspective. And so... A cultural be, mentor. He was like a cultural mentor yeah. in ways that I wasn't looking for or asking for because I wasn't aware of how important it was. Right. But as I reviewed and reflected of, over those years later, I realized that's what was happening and how he was teaching me how to see things differently, how to uh, create different expectations, how to get insight into culture that I wasn't aware of mm -hmm. and uh, the biases that I was carrying into it. Way to go. I, I always am so blessed to hear you talk about, particularly yours yours and Kimberly's and Gotham and Reka's uh, relationship that you mm -hmm. all had for so many years in Kathmandu. Well, as we as we wrap things up, Silas, I've heard you mention those times when, when we face periods of dark moments and self-doubt, and, and I've no, no doubt many, of, if not everyone listening, has experienced that at some point in time or is experiencing that right now, and I, and I know I know that I sure have many times, and I continue to from time to time. So, so as we end this interview, can you pray for those who are hurting and doubting right now? Yeah, yeah. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to just acknowledge your presence here in this place and all over the place where, where any, wherever anyone is listening, Lord, we know that you are present and you are near. And we know that you have called each one of us, to the ministry that we are putting our hands to, that are we putting our lives to. But sometimes the, the doubts come in. Did you really call us? Did we miss the boat? Are we really supposed to be here? I thought I was supposed to love these people, and right now I can't even stand them. Mm. It can be a place of darkness. It can be a place of, of deep self-doubt and even despair. And so, God, I, I just pray in your nearness, speak to each one of us in those places of darkness speak to each one of us in those places of of hopelessness so god i just pray that you would speak your your truth and speak your light and speak your peace and your grace into each life right now and in all of these things lord we we thank you for for the calling on our lives we thank you for the the places that you've put us and the people that you have given us to love and to serve and we pray all these things in your name amen Amen. Thank you so much. I so love and appreciate you, Silas. And uh, yeah, I want to just thank you all for listening also for your feedback to us. want to encourage yes. you to leave a, a comment uh, or, or maybe a, a subject matter that you'd love for Silas and me to consider covering on resiliency. And share this with friends. I, 
I send links to resiliency interviews all the time to people, not because I think we're so great, but because I think our guests are so amazing and they're sharing things that really help people. Speaking of that, I just want to point out to you that the second ever episode on resiliency way back, you know, nearly two years ago was with Mike and Stephanie, and they talked a lot about cultural adaptation, and it's excellent to hear uh, them share about that. So I commend to you the second episode that we did in September of uh, 2019. So, yeah, God bless you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Well, listeners, thanks again for tuning in. That does it for this episode of Resiliency. You can follow us on Instagram at Resiliency Podcast. And so for now, I'm Silas West, and thank you for listening to Resiliency. Resiliency.